Okay, it's been a while, so we'll remind ourselves what we've set up in Tona. In the previous two shirim, we said that the soul in Shamayim comes down into this world because it must be that there's something about Shamayim that's deficient. So even though the soul is one with Hashem in Shamayim, there's something lacking about that entire Avira that the soul needs to come down to this world. What was lacking? So we said what was lacking was the soul had no identity of its own. It was so subsumed within HaKadosh Baruch Hu that it could not say about it that it's an it. You couldn't say that it has its own independent identity. And we compared it to Adam and Chava before HaKadosh Baruch Hu split them. So if we were describing Adam and Chava before HaKadosh Baruch Hu split them, we would not call her Chava. Right? We would not even call her Isha. So could we say that Adam and Chava had true oneness before they were split? Just because they were part of the same body doesn't mean that they're truly in an intimate relationship. Intimacy, by its very definition, means two separate things that retain their separateness and yet somehow become one. Right? So the soul needs to split off. Because if the soul doesn't split off, there's no capacity for intimacy, so to speak, with Hashem. There's no capacity for oneness. Right? Make sense? Okay. That's where we left off. Which means that it's not so important for the soul to return to Shamayim. It's a way station, but it's not really important. It's not really the destination of the soul. What's the destination of the soul? It must be that the destination of the soul is down here in this world, right? So that's what the Medrash says. What does Hashem desire? A dwelling place in this world. So what's the job of the soul? Not to return to Shemayim. The job of the soul is to create something that was never created before. The same way that Adam and Chava were split, and the goal is not to return to the state that they had beforehand, it's to create something completely new. Now, the soul, when it comes down into this world, it needs to do something new that was never done before. What's new that was never done before? Our world appears to be a non-godly place. The job of the soul is to make HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, comfortable in our world. Okay, questions, comments, reactions. Yes, Eitan. Uh, you wanted to join me, I'm very sorry. Please, you don't have to apologize ever for joining this year. Yeah, Eitan. You said uh, in, a pre- in a previous year, in the first semester, um, a very difficult concept that you actually you do a circle of the board and now uh, where you said that um, a person or a soul or in any case or something 
somebody may have to let's use somebody for example. Somebody may have to venture far from God in order to find him. Right. Exactly right. The soul must leave Hakadosh Baruch Hu in order to find Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Because the soul is not finding HaKadosh Baruch Hu as long as it's in Shemayim. It has no identity. There's no, there's no seeking. Right. You compare that to, uh, to a person uh, who may be addicted to drugs, let's say. Right. The only way that he's going to have the revelation to say, I need to fix myself, is if he hits rock bottom. Correct. So the soul's finding HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world is more impressive than the very thin relationship that the soul has as long as it's in Shamayim. If the soul is in Shamayim, it doesn't feel like it has its own identity. There's no seeking, therefore there's no intimacy. So the relationship that the soul has with Hashem prior to its birth is very flimsy. Masha'in came after the soul is born, distant from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the opportunity for oneness is actualized. And so there's a more impressive relationship, a more authentic relationship that occurs down here in this world when the soul is able to create a dwelling place for HaKadosh Baruch Hu down here. Right, and the way I was thinking about it with Adam and Chava is uh, you know, they, they were one, they were separated, and that was the only way to create their unity, sort of, because they had to be separated. In the Correct. Process. It has to be, if you want to have intimacy achieved... There has to be the initial oneness, then the separation, and then the true oneness is built upon the initial oneness that existed. So before the soul is born into this world, the soul is one with Hashem, which is what gives the capacity for the soul to truly become one with Hashem. But in the interim, there must be a distance. And in that distance is where we go to build the relationship. Yes, Alicia. Um. How would this apply to marriage? So the Zayar HaKadosh says that before a person gets married, the soul is one. And then the soul splits in order to have that initial oneness, and then they, they could find each other. Yes? Do we have a relationship with ourselves, especially like two sides of the same coin? Like a good side, bad side, it's hard to tell could you just clarify what it means when you say have a relationship with yourself what do you mean by that I don't want to use terms I don't really understand but like it's a hard age to different nefashos mm-hmm. like do, do those two parts of us have a relationship with each other for sure as we're going to see in a moment for so sure they have a relationship with each other is there like an icker us and then there's like the other Part of it, or is there like both of us? Like yeah, both of it is. there is an Icar us, and that Icar us has to, but it must, that Icar us must work symbiotically with the rest of us, which we're going to discuss today. Yes, Steve. Um, is the soul, when it goes back up, why does it not go back to the original state of being not able to identify? You mean after, after death? Yeah. After death, that's just a way station, that's not the destination. That's called Olam HaNeshamos. After the soul returns, it has a certain pleasure by virtue of the fact that it's in a comfortable place for a soul. It's in a spiritual world. But the soul in a certain way is frustrated in the Olam HaNeshamos. 
because it's not doing what it was designed to do. So the ultimate destination is not up in Shemayim. The ultimate destination is down here in this world after Tchiyas HaMesim. Olam Haba is this world as it will one day be. And the, the soul's ultimate reward, so to speak, is not the pleasure of Olam HaNashamos. It's the relationship that's achieved down here in Olam Haba. Garsley? Um, is this soul separate or one within God? Because if it's separate... To the degree that anything is separate and one within God, right? Yeah, but I'm saying, if it's, if it, meaning, if it's actually not separate, then why would it need to be intimate? But you could say the same thing about anything, right? You could say, if the world is actually not separate, what does it mean for Hashem to have a dwelling place in the world down below? No, but the soul is specifically supposed to be a part of God. Because so, you said that it has no identity. So that's why... But well, it has no identity initially. No, Personal, like of its own identity, because it's part of God. But initially, yeah. But I'm saying then it's just God. It's like a ray of the sun while it's still in the sun. The ray of the sun is not discernible when it's still in the sun. It's only after you have a distance that you can discern that there's a ray that's emanating from the sun. If the soul is one within God. Then... Why is the soul different than anything? Because you said the soul needs to separate. Because... Like like everything needs to separate. Yeah, but that, like, a, like a human was never a part of God. Like a human soul was, but not the body. Why not? If Hashem is one, and truly one, then what is the notion of otherness? So then why would anything need a personal identity? That's what I'm saying. That's a, that's, that's a bigger question of at what point something gets its identity and does it truly ever have an identity it's like no but it's more sophisticated than that right because there's something called there's something called atmos right in the essence of hashem there really is nothing other than him right it's hakadosh baruch who created something called or ein sof and within the world of what we perceive to be the infinite there's room for yeshus but it's too complicated to get into right now but truly, truly, in its, in its deepest essence, there is nothing other than Hashem. It's just that HaKadosh Baruch who created the capacity for us to feel truly real. But it's, it's too far afield. So what is the separating? Yeah, it, it's, it's not fundamentally perhaps any different than anything else. It's, it's, it's a good question, but we could probably spend a month just on that. So it's too much for right now. Yeah? Um, we said that the final destination is Mason. Yeah. And what is that point? After we die, Olam was like a place? No, Olam is the destination, not the waiting place. So you said that's back here? Olam HaNashamos is the, is the waiting place. Olam HaNashamos, so that's just after we die? That's correct. After you die, your body returns to the earth. Your soul is real, so there's no reason for your soul to have any diminution of it, right? It's, it's what it is, it's a soul. It doesn't have the capacity to be less real. Because it's true, it's forever, Right? One plus one will always equal two. Trias HaMesim is part of a process of Olam Haba. After Trias HaMesim, when the soul returns down into this world, that is the ultimate destination. That's the ultimate place of its reward. Yeah? When you reach that destination, do you become omnipotent? It's more complicated than that, right? Because to say that you're omnipotent would be to say that you are to say that you are God. And I, I don't think that that's a... Uh, Everyone is. Right. 
so this, again, this gets into a little bit of the issue that Gersley was bringing up, but at, at least we can say as follows for now. The purpose of the world, which is achieved in Olam Abba, is Dira B'Tachtonin, a dwelling place in the world down below. Which paradoxically, this is what we spoke about last, last week, two weeks ago now, paradoxically means that it has to be Alyonim and Tachtonim at once. So if you lose yourself, right, if there's no more identity in Olam Haba, then it's not Tachtonim. So paradoxically, and we have no idea how this works, because we, we don't, when the Gemara says, no human being could conceive of this, because it's beyond human comprehension, how something could be completely spiritual, and that could be totally seen and completely physical at once. So what we know about Olam Haba is that you will not be God, but of course, the awareness that all is God will be completely present, and I can't—I couldn't possibly explain anything more than that. But both of the, axiomatically, both of those things need to be true. Right. Yeah. Would that not be an Eliyahu situation of well, anyone who was not lifted, right? Um, simply transformed through their neshama, becoming pure, their body. This world is very much. We're led by our body and we're trying to work on our genres. Right. He also turned that around and made his body part of his... So, right, a little bit more complicated than that. But, but yeah, the notion, let's say, the notion of uh, Misas Nashika that the Arachayim HaKadosh speaks about, that there's not so much a process of death, but the nature of the soul has been so actualized that even the body itself has become so spiritualized that the world of death is no longer shayach to it. Um, but even that, we have no idea what that means. No. Right. In other words, you're, you're, let's, let's say you're right that all of humanity would experience physicality on that level. But Elio Anavi remains Elio Anavi. That's right. Right. But we wouldn't say Elio Anavi is omnipotent, right? No. But then it answers a few questions of keeping an identity yet being... 100% pure and 100% possibly, as in Elio Anovi, as he said, is Elio Anovi. Right. Yet is. No but not really, right? Right. Now, right. he's not really. In other words, Elio Anovi. Is anybody. But even, let's say, even within Elio Anovi, the, 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 I think Gersley's question is even more primary than that. How, given the nature of God being infinite, how is there a notion of otherness? Right, so that's a machlokas between the... I mean, it was before the Hasidim and the, and the Misnagdim, there was a machlokas in the Bali Kabbalah about Simsum Yesh or Simsum Ein, and when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, what does Bereshah's bara really mean? Did God indeed create something that was actually other than Him? So that's why I said it's too far afield for this. But, once, but let's say once you believe in the notion of creation, either post-Simsum or pre-Simsum, whatever you mean by that, so then you have this question. Yeah. Why do we start off as one, then split, and then become one again? Why don't we just come to this word, word right. split? I think I said this last time, but it bears repeating because it's a good question. It's like when you're making a puzzle, right? What allows the two puzzle pieces to come together is the fact that they used to be one. So when you have a puzzle, what you have is a picture, right? Then you cut out the particular pieces. And because originally it was one gush, now it has the capacity to become one again. So the initial oneness is a critical part of the stage. right? It's a critical stage in the building, because I can't get to stage three if I never had stage one. 
I can't tell, I can't, two things, this is what really comes out from it. Two things can only ever become close, not one. Right? In the physical world, two things can only become close, not one. I can grab this shtender as hard as I want, but at the end of the day, the shtender is a shtender and I'm me, and I could be exceptionally close to it, but that's all. For there to be intimacy, oneness, the, the harmonizing, the synthesizing, the merging of two completely distinct things, it must be that there was a oneness beforehand that allowed for that, for that intimacy to occur. Why do we separate here and not like before we're born? Oh no, that's, birth is the process of separation. Right? And that's, why the, that's why the Mishnah says that the soul is born against its will. Because when the, soul comes down to this, when the soul comes down to this world, it's like, why in the world would I ever want to be here? I was very comfortable before I got here. Yeah? I'm not sure if this is partly what uh, Chris was asking. But if indeed probably. that separation... <laughs> probably is encompassing this question. Yeah. But if indeed that separation is, is part of two things in this world, that they can always come close and become one, how come the separation that occurred from going from one, from oneness, separation, how is that separation ever, why is it that after they separate, they're able to come back again? Shouldn't they, once they're separate, can never become, can never become uh, one again? Well, no, that's the point, right? Because there was an initial oneness, even in the process of separation, the capacity for a true oneness now exists. Yeah? By Tfiyas Amesim, is there still that stage, is there a Shama still processing After the soul dies, is this what you're asking? I want to make sure I get it. After the soul dies in Olam HaNeshamos, does the soul still care about Tfiyas Does the soul still care about Dir Betachtonim? Is that your question? No. Ask it again, because maybe I missed it. Um, by Tfiyas Amesim, is there, is there still a stage of the since everything is so clear? Well, e- the whole world becomes. Yeah, I mean, even that—that's Chazal say that that's at least a thousand-year process, right? There's a thousand years of the of the world transitioning from what it currently is to what what it will one day be, right? The process of revelation takes time. Right, so after that thousand years. Right, and then then you've arrived. That's that. No, it is the Yerba There's no. There's no. There's no creation of the Yerba Yeah. Oh, maybe you remind me what the phrase was that we were working off of. The initial phrase that. Uh, that ah, the initial. There's nothing as whole as a broken heart. Right. But I, I hope you're starting to intuit what the Kutzker Rebbe meant when he said that, right? Because what is brokenness really? Right? Brokenness is that separation that we've been speaking about. Former right. In other words, I used to be one, and now there's a brokenness, and there's a wholeness, and this is the paradox, there's a wholeness that's embedded within that brokenness, which is what I want to discuss today. Or, or maybe, maybe even without recognizing it. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. How does the union of two souls in this world manifest itself spiritually because we a person can go through life and never get married but that doesn't necessarily affect them later on does it when when later what do you mean by later postmortem oh for sure it does for sure it does if they don't meet their soulmate how does it how does that affect all in the You're asking such an important question, and even though it's probably going to derail us, 
I'm going to at least attempt to give a three-minute answer because it's such an important question. But if I see that it starts to become the entirety of this year, we'll have to hit pause. Yeah? Um, you know, in the secular world today, they don't understand this concept, which is why the notion of marriage is not in vogue anymore. It's like, why do I need to get married? I can live with someone till I don't want to, till I do want to. Like, what, what do I need to get married for? Part of the... I, I'm going to take it even a step further. I wouldn't even say part. I would say the most important part. Most important? One of the most important, if not the most important part of the actualization of the soul to build Diri Pitachtonim occurs in the realm of marriage. Yeah, if, if a soul does not meet its mate in this world and it doesn't experience spiritual intimacy, something has gone wrong. The soul has not been actualized to the extent that it ought to have been. And that's, that's something that's not just we're living together in an apartment. Right, the entire process of marriage is really—I mean, it's a Harsinai process. It's literally like you know, we go under a chuppah, it's like mamish, exactly like it was by Harsinai, and you know, there's a there's a notion of circles, there's a notion of intimacy that's there. The ring, walking around seven times, there's something being created in marriage that's more than just we live together and we share our finances together. And so, yes, I think it would impact the soul very much. A soul that's failed to achieve that in its life, for sure. That's why marriage is such an important part of Judaism. That make sense? Yeah. So what happens to someone who doesn't get married? He just grows up as half? Like... First of all, I think, it's, I think it's okay for us to say that that's a tragedy. Right? If a person doesn't find someone in their life to share themselves with, on a, even on a psychological level, for sure on a personal growth level, there's nothing that will mature you. There's nothing that will humble you like marriage, right? I mean, think, even just let's say on a simple level, you want something, your wife wants something else, right? So already you're in the world of like humility versus ego, right? And fundamentally, those are, that's, that's where we stand, right? At the crossroads of my own arrogance, my own yeshus, my own presence of being, I want to do what I want to do, and she wants me to do something completely different, who comes first? Right? Like, how do we if, if we, if we're not confronted with the tension of marriage, even without spirituality, you're going to be a deficient person. Right? There's nothing that humbles a person like marriage. It's so, I mean, like, again, you guys are, you guys are not married yet. So you don't necessarily understand this, but the married people in the room will tell you that uh, you know how hard it is to pull out of a fight with your wife. Yeah, it's so hard, guys. Mm. My own midos are preventing me from responding. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, you've never. I imagine you've never experienced it. I can only speak from my own experience. Other than the other fight. What was that? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, first of all, it's, it's it's super difficult. Like you live together, right? Like it's just like 
it could become like it, it's like you go home at like let's say I was to get into a fight with the Rosh Shiva. Baruch Hashem doesn't happen, but I go home at night. You know what I'm saying? It's not we're not bound together. I could quit. There's no there's no notion of divorce because you got into a fight. It's not That's it. Like the binding of marriage is like we're gonna work this through, which means one of us is gonna have to, and probably both of us are gonna have to say, here's where my ego steered me, right? Here's where my stuff brought me to this moment. That's like, that's like a really hard thing to do. Yeah, I'm talking about major courage. Nothing will, nothing in your life will shape you like marriage. So eventually, you'll have to compromise, or they'll have to compromise. But in other relationships, you could just. Not compromise. So For, yeah. Fight hard. Look, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of ultimatums. Sounds bad when you first hear it, but then when you unpack it, it's good, right? Because an ultimatum basically says, "Look, this is what works for me. If it doesn't work for you, and it doesn't work for me, and that's it, right? Like, let's say I were to come to the yeshiva and I were to say, "Look, I I can't work for you for this amount of money anymore because I just can't feed my family, right? So." It's it's not a it's not a threat. It's just a reality. So this is what works for me. And the yeshiva could say, okay, you're replaceable, and thank you so much for the hard work. But it doesn't work for us on a budgetary level to give you the raise that you need. And then I could either choose to live within that reality or to leave. In marriage, there is no such construct. It's like, hey, you need to like what? <laughs> like again, as long as the marriage is not immoral or abusive. You have to keep. You have to keep at it. You have to keep finding that middle ground. So nothing will shape shape you as a person like marriage. The responsibility of marriage is is, is also huge, but the marriage itself, the chefts of marriage, to continue to work to that. That's what you see. It's always amazing. I I, I see this year in and year out. You see these guys. They're in Mavasarat. They're eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old, and you look at them and you go like. How are you going to be married, like, in a couple of years from now? You're barely human. Like, you're walking protoplasm sometimes, no? Yeah. I don't mean that in, like, a negative way. I'm saying, like, you, you like... Well, obviously, I mean it in a negative way, but, like... Uh, <laughs> no, I mean it, like, let's say, for example... you Yeah, you hear, you hear things from 18 and 19-year-old young men that you don't hear from adults. Like, yeah. like... Um, I guess I may as well just say this because it's true. You're not sick. You're not sick. You're not. You're fine. You can get up. You can get up in the morning. You're fine. You're not sick. You know how I know that? Because in a couple years from now when you have a job and you're sick, you won't be sick. If you have to take off because you're really sick, I get it. But do you know how few... When you have vacation days, when you're making a cheshben, you have like two weeks of paid vacation on a year... Somehow, you're not sick. What's the shot in that? I care. I'm saying, because you have a, a certain level of responsibility, you have a certain level of maturity, and you show up to life. There was a, it was a guy in Mavasar that just for the life of him could not wake up for shachars. And I kept saying to him, I'm like, you're going to wake up in your life. He's like, I'm, I'm not. He's like, I never have, and I won't. He went to YU. He was a phenomenal baseball player. So he played baseball for YU. YU baseball practice is 5 a.m. And he made it to practice. So we're very close. I said to him, Jordan, help me understand how you make it to baseball practice. He goes, well, 
can't miss baseball practice. <laughs> I was like, exactly. Right? Like, uh, that's what the Rosh always says. Nobody ever sleeps through their flight. Right? So it's, uh, it's, it's not just the responsibility. It's like marriage itself grows you. And you see these guys three years later, 23 years old. I have seven weddings. Seven weddings in the next two months. Seven Mavasar weddings in the next two months. You're saying a guy had seven different weddings. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> seven different people are getting married seven different times in the next two months. Yeah? And I remember these guys just a couple of years ago. What's, and, and, and I look at them now and go, like, really? You're going to be married? But then you look at them a couple years after that. It's like they're completely different people. Because marriage itself will functionally change you. Yeah? Um, it's often spoken about in Yeshiva that uh, you should not be a growth product of the relationship that you're in. So how exactly do we see that in relation to this concept of like the marriage itself will shape you? Do you mean like you shouldn't be dating now while you're in yeshiva because then your growth is shaped by the other person? In a sense, yeah, yes. I, think the, I think the answer to that is, is timing, right? Because as you are, let's say, forming the fa- fundamental foundations of who you are, it's probably important to do that without, an, without a voice in your head that's shifting you to a place of inauthenticity. But hopefully once you've discovered that baseline authenticity, now you're able to share that with another, and then from that place you'll grow tremendously. Then it's healthy. So once once a person reaches an authentic place within themselves, then it is, theoretically speaking, okay for them to be in a relationship. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. uh, And even help them. There's a level of independence. When I say independence, I don't mean financial independence, but a level of emotional, spiritual psychological independence that's critical for a person to have before they enter into a relationship. Yeah? Well, you don't necessarily have to be talking about uh, that kind of relationship because, um, you know, uh, the young person's fundamental years of growth um, are always surrounded by other people. No person's going through it alone. A person can have a best friend. I could have a best friend who, um, who may be acting in a certain way that's influencing me to act a certain way whether that's positive or negative, and that's going to shape my growth. It's not necessarily a girlfriend. I, I, uh, I don't disagree with you, but I think my experience teaches me that at this age, for many reasons that are not worth necessarily fighting about right now, but my experience is that the nature of male-female relationships are just different. And the capacity to lose yourself for another is greater. In other words, am I really being authentic or am I doing what she wants me to do? And by the way, I mean that in the positive and the negative, right? She might be, in, she might be influencing you to do something more. Maybe she's influencing you to go to Davin or to go to Learn, which is great. But if it's not you, right, and if you haven't come to that from within yourself in a very honest way, um, I don't know... I'm not saying it's not possible for you know to do that for a guy, for a good friend, but somehow in my experience it hits different. Well, one thing I can point to, which is a very real thing, is the positive peer pressure of yeshiva. Right? A guy could uh, be coming out of high school, really yeah. not enjoying learning, really not uh, ever going to diving, really not doing any of those things. Yeah. It's yeshiva, and it's the cool thing to be doing, to all these things in yeshiva, learning, yeah. diving, everything. Um, and then that could shape the person whether they come to the realization or not. The, the You're highlighting one of the dangers of yeshiva, by the way. The week we had is one example. The 80 daf. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the dangers of yeshiva. And, and, and it's one of the challenges of education in general, right? How do, we, how do we challenge people to do something and create an environment that's conducive to doing that and at the same time keeping our eye on the ball that the Talmud is actually doing it because it's authentically him? That's not a simple thing. That is a nice thing. Yeah, it's a... Yeah, Sam. No, no, no. Yeah? Isn't that the whole problem with, like, incentives, though? Like, there's, like, tons of incentives, but it's, like, people aren't doing it because they want to do it. It's also... It's... An incentive... An incentive is a... Again, I, I think you're hitting on an important point, right? Am I doing it for the incentive, or am I doing it because it's, because it's real, because it's me? And sometimes we need the incentive in order to do the thing that's real, right? And, and we do that all the time, right? Like, I imagine if you ran a business and you had a sales team, it probably wouldn't be crazy for you to say to the sales team, if you hit this mark, you're all going to get this bonus, right? So why do you need an incentive? It's your job. Because we're human beings, and sometimes we need incentives to do our jobs. But you're right. If it's the success of an incentive program is not measured by how well you do while the incentive is going on. It's measured by how well you do when the incentive is over. Yeah? Let's say you maybe buy an incentive. Um, this, a theoretical opportunity is a way to gauge yourself as to whether or not you really are doing this for yourself or for the sake of the incentive. But at the same time, like, I feel like this is also, I think, when I feel that this is also speaking to a very idealistic level of being the truest version of yourself. And there are definitely people who find value in, like, at the very least, like, you're doing, you're doing your job. Fine, but at the same... And there are certain yeshivas that kind of are shaped like that, in a certain sense. Certain ones definitely come to mind. Um, no names. Yeah, Pasha, Pasha. But, um, but in a certain sense, it's definitely not the idealistic way for Tamiya to be growing. Everyone has their own style. Yeah. Do you have something wrong with like using an incentive to get you to do something, but then like let's say like later on like it might get you to do it for like yourself? Like, I think that's wonderful. You saying like you think it's okay to like do something new or just push yourself for like the wrong reason if it like eventually leads to like you being motivated on your own? I think that's I think that's exactly what Chazal mean when they say mitoshalolishma balishma. Right? If somebody told if somebody let's say wanted to inspire me to get in the gym. He said, go to the gym for a month, and I'll give you $500, right? So maybe that was the kickstart that I needed in order to get to the gym. Maybe I did it initially for 500 bucks, but after a month where you're ridiculously ripped, and all of a sudden you feel like, I'm setting new PRs for myself, right? And you're like feeling really good about it, you continue doing it, hopefully. At some point, though, you have to do it for yourself. You can't work with For sure. But I do think that people run the clock out on that a little bit too early, right? In other words... So, authenticity is a lifetime pursuit. I don't know that, I don't know that at eighteen and nineteen years old, with all the learning that I did in Mivaseret, I don't know that I was able to say that it was authentic. Honestly, I'm forty-one. I don't know that I'm able to say that it's authentic. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still in that process. So I, I think we run out the clock a little bit too early. Yeah. You just said that authenticity is a life's pursuit. Yeah. And how, how should, why should you ever get married? If it's gonna not make you authentic. Well, I, I think that there's you know shades of gray here, right? In other words, no, like, foundational authenticity. I think I've achieved. At eighteen, verse twenty-three, 
Well, hopefully it's, hopefully it's the work that you're doing on yourself right now and in the coming years. I didn't say that. Like, you know, you know, you know, not, not yeshiva per se, but if, if these fundamental years are not used for a person to think about the person that they want to be and to start to self-actualize, and then they told me that they want to be in a relationship with somebody else, yeah, that's scary stuff. Also, at what point do you... You said, like, you said like the whole point is to grow together. But at what... Also, like, I don't... I, don't I didn't say the whole point was to grow together, but you will grow together, yeah. But, like, I don't know what the... What Judaism's philosophy is on, like, soulmates. Like, I don't know if that's actually a thing. It's a thing. So then, like, how do you know if the person is, like... I mean, you said you just have to work it out. So when when is it not that case? And when do you have to, like, realize that this person's not for you? You're saying you're married? Let's say you're married. And if the relationship is immoral or abusive? That's very, I mean, like, abusive, like, physical is very easy to see, but I'm saying, like. That's right. If a person is in an emotionally abusive relationship. Let's say you realize that the other person hasn't gained that level of authenticity. Yeah. Then you don't work it out. These are Shilohs for mental health professionals and people with. Years and years and years of experience, and they're not decisions to be made lightly. Yeah, that's an important question. Again, I couldn't possibly give you some formula to include all of it, but yes, emotional abuse is a very real thing. And uh, on, on that, though, going back to the fighting that was mentioned, there is going to be fighting, but what you mustn't do is straight away say that's abuse or that's. You've, you've got to really see it for what it is and try to work through it. And it can take a day, it can take a month, it can take a year, it can take 10 years, it can take a lifetime. Yeah. But you, I think it was saying, you've got to be on the same page. And if you're not on the same page, um, then there are other things that... All up. sorts of dynamics. Yeah. No, but you're right. You're making an important point because today especially we hear, like almost, I, I feel bad saying it like this, but like, Every time they have, like, a couple has a fight and they come to me, I'm like, they're like, he was being abusive. I'm like, I don't know. It sounds like you guys were having a fight. Like, what is that, like, where is that line of what's called abuse? Because we throw out that word so easily today. And at the same time, we don't use it in its proper context. Like, I feel like emotional abuse happens Right, so it's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily no, like, call that abuse because you feel say, hurt doesn't say, mean you were abused. I would say in marriages, but like, right? These are these are very 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 subtle things. These are very subtle things. Yeah, it's a. I'll tell you what. It's a. It's a. It's a good question, but I. I don't know that I could give you the the exact definition that you're looking for. I don't know that I have those words. I don't know that I have that language defined. Yeah. So I mentioned before about the, if we go back to the incentive program, you, talk, you, you can have two different people doing the exact same thing, right? Both learning a 50 DAF or, or sorry, uh, what is like um, 50 hours, 10, 80 DAF. But if one person is doing it purely, not purely Shema, but he's doing it Lishma, and the other person is doing it for the incentive, or even worse, because he doesn't want his room or his sheriff to do it, he doesn't want them to miss out on the incentive. They are doing this, they're doing this, what they're doing is the same, but the reason why is completely different. 
You're saying that is what makes the difference. Well, that, that, but that's, even that's not a bad thing, right? Like, let's say a guy says, I'm going to participate in the incentive program because I want my, even though I'm not so into it, well, let's say my shear is into it, right? There's a level of responsibility that you are macabre on yourself that helps you, right? And number two, sometimes you have to act your way into good thinking. Right? Like, you can't always think your way into good acting. Sometimes you just have to do the right thing. And if you do the right thing enough times in a row, then you realize, like, oh, that's a good thing. Sometimes our minds are designed that way. Right? It's, again, it depends, it depends on the person. Some people that, are not. That like can it. drive you away from things. It can make you burn out. I, I, it, I, I'm going um, to respectfully push back on that one. You, you, no, no, I would not. I wouldn't do it disrespectfully. I, respectfully, but yeah. No, it's 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 not it's not it's not that what you're saying is wrong. It's just it's a generational thing. I hear it from guys in yeshiva all the time. They like live with a fear of burning out. And it's like, but but maybe but maybe that could maybe like if I do that, then I'll get burned out. Oh, I didn't mean that. That's not what I mean. No, I I'll I know that you don't mean it that way. I'm saying, let's say, I'm just using it as a springboard to address it. Guys, there's such a thing called grit. Life is not easy, right? Like, there's there's something about pushing yourself to the limits of what you can do, and then going like, good, that's my maximum, right? It's called it's called manning up in life, right? Taking responsibility, guys, like. It, it's on every level. I, I mean this on every level. I'm going to use I'm going to use a bad muscle, but I'm and I'm doing it on purpose. Excuse me, a second. I'm, I'm I'm doing it on purpose. Life is expensive. It's expensive, right? Showing up to life to be able to support your family, right? Like, I don't. I, I remember that when I was um, when we moved from Farakway to Lawrence, which in the five towns at the time was like a move up let's say in the financial world, I remember that I noticed people left their houses earlier in the morning. There was a certain level of tenacity, a certain level of grit, of focus. Nobody wakes up in the morning if they're going to a business deal and they can make a million dollars. Nobody goes, yeah, I'm just afraid I'm going to burn out if I push myself. No, like, like you don't become this. My father always told me there's two people that leave at 5 o'clock, the CEO and the people that will never be CEO. It's like once you've made it a CEO, then you could leave at five. But most CEOs don't leave at five. Right? You want to be the president of a company, it requires sacrifice. Taking it over to something much more important, right? In relationships, relationships require perseverance. It, it, it's pushing yourself in times. You, you don't get to go in a relationship like, I just, have too much to, I just have too much on my plate right now, I can't prioritize this. No, if you don't water the relationship like anything in life, it will die. So... We, I think we have like this like sort of cozy world that we create for ourselves. We're like, I don't want to push myself too hard. No, like, life is hard. Learn to challenge yourself. And then within that, learn what your limits are and, and be respectful of your own personal limits. But you can do more than you think you could do. Okay, so wait, you're saying this in the sense that address the general issue? Or yeah, not you, not you, not you. I'm thinking in the general sense. I just want to see what I was going to say. Yeah. Actually, that wasn't really sort of what I was saying, but it wasn't really. What I was really saying is that sometimes when we do things, not for you said, if you do something, the right thing, for the wrong reason enough times, that can be a positive thing. But on the other hand, it can, it, this, forget burnout, it can drive people away. It can cause people to become spiteful to some extent. I know, but, but if, if, let's, let's take this out of Judaism for a second, right? 100%. Let's say you have an addict. He's an alcoholic. You know what he needs to do first, before anything? He needs to be sober. 
we can't have conversations about the 12 steps and the work that you have to do on yourself while you're drinking. It's, there's no muckum for it to take hold. You know what the addict would say if you say, look, first you've got to get sober. Yeah, but like, I'm afraid I'm going to be resentful of the program if I get sober so fast. No, like, you're not realizing that you're acting in a way that's harmful to yourself, right? So we create these constructs where we give ourselves that out already from the beginning that we don't have to challenge ourselves. No, if I do that, like, maybe it's going to push me farther away. Yeah, like, let's say I said that to you about, uh, I don't know, eating, right? For me, being on an appropriate healthy diet is hard. I don't want to, like, start eating healthy because I'm afraid, like, it'll, it'll really just make me eat worse. What would, what would you say if I told you that? You're probably lying to yourself, Rebbe, right? Like, have a salad. No, there, there's, I, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that, that it's true, but there's elements of it. <laughs> the amazing part about rationalizations is the lies that we're willing to tell ourselves in order to uh, does that make sense? I, I, I hear what you're saying I'm just saying like we put these things in place we give ourselves these exits so that as we're going along the way it's like I can just get it right but that's right that, that's not that's not that's not e- it's again, you're setting up the formula in an interesting way, right? If a person is eating unhealthy, the antidote is to eat healthy, no, also, not to eat less. Yeah, but also, if it's steps, meaning like someone should not overreach their steps, is there steps that everything? I want. I just. I have one question for you. Yeah. You're gonna be. What are you planning on doing with your life to support yourself financially? Let's say you went into business. I think it would be reasonable for you to say there's steps in my business that I need in order to build this business. But you know what I don't hear people say? I, I'm, I'm not ready for that yet. Like, I need to go slowly. Like, no, if you've got to put $100,000 on the table, you're going to get creative to get that $100,000. certain things. Again, I agree with you, fundamentally. I just, for some reason, I don't hear people speak that way when it comes to finances. I hear people speaking in an ambitious way. Why shouldn't we be as ambitious in our but Judaism? Much more people to become, like, people to become I'll tell you what. I, I, I'll put my financially unstable people against your financially unstable people and we'll see who, which type of rhetoric is driving which. I imagine, maybe I, I've never done a scientific study, but I imagine less successful people have a rhetoric of like, I don't know, I'm not ready for that, let's see, it has to be comfortable for me. Successful people in general, my experience, is their level of ambition and the rhetoric that it reflects is higher level. There's also something to say, you're you're going to make the same point again. You're, and I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think what we're saying is important. I'm not denying the value of consistency or of doing things in steps. But ask yourself in an honest moment. Are you just saying that because it's more comfortable? You're or, right, to be honest with yourself. I'm right. saying sometimes consistency is more important than I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with you, but that's not the point that we're making. The point that we're making is, are you really ambitious about this? Or are you just using that as your out? Well, let's say you're ambitious about it, but you use that ambition to... And, stay with the question. Yeah, Are you really ambitious, or are you using it as an out? That's, that's the point we're making here, right? I'm afraid that if I do it this way, I'm going to burn out. I'm afraid that it's going to end up backfiring. It's not going to backfire. What was that? 
So I, w- I wasn't talking. About no, I'm not talking about you. I'm, I'm talking about the concept. No, I understand. Okay, Rabbi, so we'll stop here for today.